Well, I hope your hearts have been made ready to hear from God's Word this morning, and I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Uh, for those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks, uh, as our senior pastor is away, uh, for those of you who may be visiting, I'm not the senior pastor of the church, I'm not uh, the regular preacher here, uh, but uh, he is away uh, on a mission trip uh, with a team from our church. Uh, they are in Malaysia, and they have arrived safely. Uh, they had a full day uh, Yesterday, this morning, uh, they're 13 hours ahead of us, so it's, you know, 12.20 at night right now. So hopefully they're fast asleep, uh, recovering from the long trip. But uh, before we turn our attention to God's Word, we want to, to pray for them and to pray that the Lord would keep them safe and that He would use them over the next uh, seven or eight days while they're there and keep them safe as they return home. Uh, so uh, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, but before we dive in, uh, let's go to God and let's ask Him for His blessing on our mission team and Uh, for his blessing on our time in God's word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and uh, our hearts have been softened and made ready to hear from your word, I pray. Lord, uh, we uh, boast in no one else for salvation except for you and for you alone. And Lord, we are thankful for the gift that you have given us uh, in your son, Jesus Christ, and that you are not a silent God, but that you are a God who has spoken and who has revealed himself in your work uh, in the world through your word. And Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention and turn our focus uh, to your word this morning, that, uh, that you would use your spirit within us to teach us what we don't know, uh, to show us where there are holes in our faith. Uh, Father, and by the grace of your work, Lord, to, to fill those holes. Lord, we pray that, that you would do your work among us this morning by using your word. Lord, we want to lift up to you our Malaysia team. Lord, we, we pray for Pastor Richard. We pray for Miss Marilyn and uh, for Miss Sindra and for Miss Jennifer as they are there in KL. Lord, I pray that they are resting well right now. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would use them this week uh, to be a shining light in that dark place of the world. Lord, I pray for every college student that they come in contact with this week uh, on campus. Lord, I pray for every orphan that they meet uh, in that orphanage there. Father, that you would use them in a mighty way. Uh, to proclaim good news to those who are otherwise hopeless. Lord, we, uh, we don't just pray for ourselves this morning. Lord, we want to pray for other churches around us. And so, Lord, this morning we bring to you and we lift up to you Chaplain Baptist Church just up the road. Lord, we pray also for, for Bardstown Baptist Church uh, just down the road a little bit as both of those churches are without a senior pastor right now. Lord, I pray that uh, whoever is filling their pulpits this morning Uh, Father, would be faithful to proclaim your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for those churches as they uh, search out uh, who it is that they would have to lead them. And Lord, I pray that that you would be preparing the right man for the job. Lord, we pray also for our own search process. Lord, we want to lift up to you Matt Thompson. Lord, as he comes in uh, just a few weeks, uh, Lord, as a candidate to be a pastor here, Father, we pray that you would be preparing his heart. Lord, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts, giving us wisdom as to whether or not uh, Matt is uh, the man that you would have to come to us to, to lead us. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would give us grace. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We'll be in Ruth chapter 1 this morning. We're uh, going to step aside from the book of Acts uh, just for the next two weeks. Uh, And we're going to look here uh, this morning at Ruth chapter 1. And the next week, uh, we'll have another guest preacher. And I'm not sure what he's preaching on yet, so I can't give you a heads up there. But 
uh, be looking out. We'll, we'll announce it as soon as we know. Uh, but uh, this morning we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. And so I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word. Uh, let's stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant Word. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse 1 and I'm going to read down through verse 18 this morning. It's going to be our text. Ruth 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judea. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. When she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? I have, yet son, have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I had hope, uh, if I should even bear a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried. Thus, may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Then she saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more to her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love a good story. Ever since I was a little boy, nothing would, nothing would thrill me more. And, and even today, really, not much thrills me more than a good story. I love how every good story shares common components, right? Most good stories begin with the same phrase, right? Once upon a time. Right? And, and then they go on to introduce characters and, 
And usually in a good story, a problem arises fairly early on. Uh, most of the story, the heart of the story, are perhaps is the characters who are, who are working and who are trying to figure out exactly how to resolve this problem that they find themselves in. And usually in every good story, there's a resolution. There may be twists and turns. And uh, in the best of stories, the resolution works out not exactly how you expect. It's not exactly predictable. And then every good story usually ends with uh, a common phrase. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? If you were to take the four chapters of the book of Ruth and rip them out of your Bible and, and read them on their own, Ruth would be a fantastic story. It would be a fantastic story. Uh, all of the elements of a good story are present in this book. There, there's love, there are, there's death, there's conflict, uh, there's risk, there's all of these things, and ultimately there is redemption and resolution. However, I think far too often we read the book of Ruth, it's a familiar story to most of us, we take the book of Ruth and we read it kind of isolated from the rest of the Bible, and we really miss exactly how extraordinary the book of Ruth is, the story of Ruth is. It is an absolutely extraordinary book. And it is amazing to see how God, and I think this is, honestly, I think this is what the book of Ruth is. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning. I encourage you, though, uh, go home and read the whole book this afternoon. It's only four chapters. It'll take you about half an hour. It's better than any football game that's going to be on, I promise you. Uh, read through the book of Ruth and you will see what you'll find is that there's this slice of history. There's this slice of Old Testament history that's cut out and, and a magnifying glass is put on it for us. And it's not just to show us uh, what faithfulness to family looks like. It's not just to show us how, how love conquers and overcomes difficult circumstances or anything like that. What we see in the book of Ruth is that God, a faithful God is behind the scenes working and he, he's literally bending the course of history to bring about a redeemer. See, brothers and sisters, if we, if we take the book of Ruth by itself without the context of the rest of the Bible, we think that that redeemer is, is Boaz. We think, oh, what a nice story. Ruth was redeemed. But what we miss is that Ruth's story is our story. That the redemption that, that Ruth finds is not just from Boaz, but it's from the Lord. And out of that redemption from the Lord, how, how God saves this pagan Moabite young woman. He takes her out of her, her context of idolatry and those things, and he puts her, he saves her by his grace, and he puts her in the family line of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What you see in the book of Ruth is how God is faithfully and meticulously and sovereignly bending the course of history to redeem for himself a people that includes you and me. That's what the book of Ruth is about. It's not just about love. It's not just about faithfulness. It's about redemption. It's about redemption that we find in the face of Jesus. And I hope that we see that this morning as we study this book. I have three uh, short points uh, that we're going to look at from these 18 verses, uh, and then uh, we'll see how these things uh, apply to our own lives as we go along. So uh, take a look there in your notes, follow along in your notes. The first point that we have this morning is that when we take matters into our own hands, disobedience leads to more disobedience. 
this story opens up with uh, this statement in verse 1. It's not uh, once upon a time, but it's something similar. It's a statement that gives us the context uh, in which the scenes of the book of Ruth play out. And we see there in verse 1 that it comes about when the judges govern the land and there's a famine in the land. I don't know how many of you have brushed up on your Old Testament history, but I want to give you a 10,000-foot view of what happens from the end of the book of Genesis to, to where we find ourselves in Ruth. Uh, to kind of give ourselves a context and understanding uh, what it is that's taking place in the land and the significance of it. You remember we, not too long ago we finished the book of Genesis and at the close of the book of Genesis we find the Israelites in the land of Egypt. Uh, Joseph is, is uh, second in command and the book kind of resolves uh, with Joseph and his family there in Egypt. You flip one page over to the book of Exodus chapter 1, you see that uh, a, a Pharaoh arises uh, after some uh, quite a long amount of time, a Pharaoh arises that has forgotten uh, who Joseph was. Uh, and he is intimidated by the Israelites who are in the land. Uh, the Lord had certainly been faithful to keep his promise uh, to Abraham to multiply his offspring because at this point there's around about a million uh, Israelites who are living in the land of Egypt. And that makes uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt of the time kind of paranoid he says they're great. If they want to come up against us, they could be a mighty army. So what he decides to do is he decides to put them under his heavy hand of slavery. And for several hundred years, uh, these people are absolutely tortured uh, in the land of Egypt as oppressed slaves. The Lord is faithful to his people, though, and he remembers his promise that he made to Abraham uh, to give them the land of Canaan. And so he rises, raises up for himself uh, a servant named Moses, and through a series of events, Moses uh, leads the people of Israel. And uh, certainly the Lord is, is uh, working in this story. He leads the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt uh, and takes them straight to Sinai. And there on the foothills of Mount Sinai, the Lord makes a covenant and gives his law uh, to the people of Israel. And he, he lays out for them the Ten Commandments. And he says to them, uh, if you keep these commandments, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is what living in faithful covenant community with me looks like. And the people agree, uh, yes, we will do uh, all that we can do to obey uh, this law of God and we want to be your people and you to be our God. But it doesn't take very long <laughs> for the people to go back on their promise. Uh, actually, they're still at the foothills of Sinai. They fall straight back into idolatry, and because of their unfaithfulness, the Lord punishes them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually, uh, that whole generation of Israelites dies off there in the wilderness, and a new generation rises up. Moses uh, dies there uh, at the brink of the promised land, uh, and then you turn to the book of Joshua, and the Lord rises, raises up this new leader for his people named Joshua. And the entire book of Joshua uh, is the Lord sovereignly leading his people into this land of Canaan and it's conquest after conquest after conquest of the Lord meticulously keeping his promise to give them the land that he had promised to their, fathers, to their father Abraham. And at the end of the book of Joshua, if you remember, the people are settled into the land. It's all been uh, allocated uh, to the different tribes and to the different people and Joshua, on his deathbed, calls the people of Israel together and he recounts everything that the Lord had done for them and how faithful he had been. And he reminds them, the Lord has been faithful to you, so you must choose this day whom you will serve. And that's when the 
famous verses, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people uh, there with Joshua say, yes, we will serve the Lord as well. So the book of Joshua ends on a high note. The people are in the land. It seems that God has kept all of his promises. But then you flip over to Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and you begin to read one of the darkest, most grotesque, nastiest books in the entire Bible. And all it is is the people of Israel spiraling downward into deeper and deeper and deeper sin. A lot of times we read through the book of Judges and we take some of the characters of that book and we put them on a pedestal and we say, look what the Lord did to you know, guys like Gideon. And we read about Gideon and you know, we hold him up on this pedestal and man, Gideon, actually if we read the story, Gideon was a coward. He was an absolute coward of a man. He was faithless. He was certainly no example for us to follow. You think of guys like Samson. Samson, one of the strongest men in the world, you know, and the incredible story about him wiping out the Philistines by pulling the building down on top of uh, himself and on top of them and, and taking out the, the Philistines. But in all actuality, Samson was, he was a gross man. Certainly uh, not what you would think of as a leader. In the book of Judges, this time period, is just a dark, dark time period in the, in the history of Israel. And there's a, there's a verse, there's a phrase that, is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's, it's almost like a drumbeat. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every day, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges, the, the time period in which we find ourselves in here, the, the context of the book of Ruth is just lawlessness and sin and depravity put on full display. The opening of the book of Ruth, we see that the Lord has caused a famine uh, to fall on the land in Bethlehem. It's kind of ironic that the word Bethlehem, the city Bethlehem, which is a very uh, familiar city to all of us, right? It literally means house of bread. But the Lord has removed his hand from that city, and now there is a famine on the land, and we're introduced to this family, this family of a man named Elimelech. His wife, Naomi, they have two sons. And in the face of this famine, Elimelech decides... Uh, to forsake the promised land, to leave the promised land, and to sojourn, to go out uh, to the town of Moab, to the city of Moab. Why is Moab significant? Well, if you read in Genesis 19, uh, Moab was a man who was born uh, to Lot and to his daughter, and it, is, it begins in sin and it spirals into more sin. Uh, you come to the point in Judges 3, uh, where the king of Moab... Uh, is uh, heavy-handed. He is ruling uh, over the people of Israel, and he is uh, basically torturing them. Uh, he is a, the Scripture describes him as a fat man, a man by the name of Ehud. Ehud is just a wicked... Everything about Moab, everything that we know about Moab up until this point, absolutely stands in stark contrast to the Lord's covenant faithfulness in the land of Canaan. Moab is a place of alienation. It's a place that's outside of the promises of God. And Elimelech forsakes the promises of God that are there. And instead of repenting and, and turning back to the Lord and trusting in the Lord, he decides to take matters into his own hands and he leads his family out of the promised land and to this place called Moab. What was originally intended to be just a sojourn to survive the famine 
turns into a little over a 10-year stay. Eventually what happens is Elimelech dies. He dies there outside of the promised land. He dies outside of the people of God. He disregards God's instructions and his sin leads to more sin. His sons uh, disregard the commandment of God and they take for themselves two Moabite women. You see, all throughout the scripture, especially early on, uh, when they're entering into the land of Canaan, the Lord instructs the people over and over and over again, do not take for yourselves foreign wives. Don't marry outside of the covenant community because what's going to happen is, is you are eventually going to slide off into their idolatry. You see, Elimelech's sons uh, disregarding God's commandment in the same way Elimelech did, and they take for themselves two Moabite wives, one by the name of Orpha and one by the name of Ruth. Brothers and sisters, this shows us what happens uh, when we take matters into our own hands. When we take matters into our own hands, rather than listening to the Lord's word, we never intend on going astray for that long. And usually we seek to justify ourselves when, when we do it. You know, if you were to talk to Elimelech and say, why are you leaving the covenant land? Why are you leaving this promised land where the Lord has promised to take care of you I'm sure Elimelech would say, I know what the Lord has promised, but if we don't leave, we'll starve. Right? So he, seeks, he would probably seek to justify himself in that way. And we usually seek to justify our own selves in that way as well. And brothers and sisters, that is the very definition of walking by sight rather than walking by faith. When we walk by sight, it never works out for us in the end. When we walk by sight, it never works out for us in the end. There's an old saying that my dad used to say to me. It's not original with him. I've heard it in other places, and I'm sure you've heard it as well. But it's one that's worth being reminded of often. My dad used to tell me all the time, Nick, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's the reality of walking by sight rather than walking by faith our sin will lead us astray and it will capture our hearts and our disobedience will lead to more and to more and to more disobedience at the end of the day we can be led down this same path and we can be tempted to distrust god's goodness in all things that's where elimelech and where his sons find themselves and eventually what happens is the lord uh, takes the lives of naomi's two sons so now here you have this widowed Israelite woman living in the land of Moab apart from her covenant community, apart from her family, and she's all alone. No husband to care for her. No sons to care for her. And we can just picture what it's like for Naomi to be standing at the grave of her final son, completely hopeless and completely alone in the world. Absolute rock bottom and we can be tempted to look at naomi and think well she just got what she deserved <laughs> if she would have just been faithful to the lord this would have never happened to her and we can be tempted to say naomi just like just like she says in the text the lord has removed his hand from you and you are now completely and utterly alone but by God's grace and by God's 
goodness, the Lord is about to use this hopeless situation to bring about redemption, not only for Naomi, not only for Ruth, but for you and for me as well. You see, our God is a God who is in the business of taking our darkest moments and using them for his glory and for our good. That's exactly what it is that that God is about to do. And that leads us to our second point. Repentance is rooted in God's grace. Repentance is rooted in God's grace. As Naomi stands there with no husband, with no sons, with these two younger daughter-in-laws, these Moabite women, the only ones in the world that she knows, and she hears a message from her hometown in Bethlehem. Look at verse 6. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. And why is that? Because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. Here we see in the darkest of moments, in the first time in the book of Ruth, we see this glimpse of light that the Lord is at work. And he has visited his people in the town of Bethlehem and he has provided for them food. So it's interesting in these verses that, that six different times this word return is used. It's used over and over and over and over again. Return, return, depart from and return. This word for return is the word that we get our word repentance from. What you see here is you see Naomi in the most hopeless of situations by the grace of God is given a sliver of light, just a sliver of hope. And it's all she's got left. And so she has decided to return and to go back to the land of Bethlehem. She repents. She turns away from the decision that her family, that her husband and that her sons had made. She repents and she returns to the Lord. She flees back to Him. This word repentance is one that we use often and it's one we throw out, but uh, I, I think at times we can forget exactly what the word means. One of the best definitions of the word repentance uh, is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says that repentance is a grace Repentance is a grace which is given by God, whereby a sinner realizes his sinfulness, which is contrary to the holiness of God, and turns from that sin and turns back to God. This repentance that that Naomi is, is displaying here is a grace of God. It's that God has come back, and he has visited his people, and he is providing for their needs, and Naomi sees that, and she turns from the land of Moab, and she goes back. She's going back to uh, her people, to the promised land. Her two daughters-in-law get up to go with her, and while they're on their way, something really interesting takes place. In verse 8, you see that Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law, and she says, Go, return each of you to his mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. May the Lord grant that you may find rest in each of, in the house of her husband. Each in the house of her husband. And then she kisses them and they lift up their voice and they weep. 
as they're going back to, to Bethlehem, I think Naomi really does two things here. First, she realizes that, that the road to Bethlehem, that her, her hope in Bethlehem is just a tiny spark of hope. Right? There's food there, uh, and it's going to be hard enough for her to work to get something to eat, much less to take care of these two Moabite girls, these other two widows. And so she turns to them and she says, there's no hope for you here in Bethlehem. Go back, return, and go back to uh, the land of Moab. Go return to your mother's house, uh, find a husband, and there live out your days under the blessing of the Lord. And she, she tells them, go back. Don't come with me. Return. So on one hand, Naomi's just giving them some practical advice. And she's showing them how bleak the situation really is in Bethlehem. But Naomi also does something else. She prays for them. She says, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. Right? Find peace. Naomi prays that Yahweh would visit these two girls and that, that, that he would bless them. Brothers and sisters, Naomi lays out for us what biblical repentance looks like here. Repentance doesn't just come because we know that we're guilty of sin and that we deserve punishment from God because of our sin. Our forgiveness is rooted in the good news that comes from the town of Bethlehem. Namely, that God has visited his people. God has visited his people in the person of Jesus from this house of bread. And Jesus comes and he lives and he dies in our place. And he's to be raised from the dead. And that repentance that we receive from God is a grace of God. You see, on the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi couldn't see the bigger picture. She couldn't see the bigger picture that in Bethlehem lied every hope, the only hope that these women had. She couldn't see that all that God was doing, but she was about to see, and Ruth was about to see, that a faithful God, that Yahweh, is a faithful Redeemer, and He will provide for their every need. Brothers and sisters, see what God has done for you in the story of Ruth this morning. See how God will bend the very course of history to bring about repentance in your salvation. Orpha refuses, and she walks off to the scene, she walks off the pages of Scripture, and she misses the opportunity to be in the family line of Jesus. But what we see is that God is about to take Ruth, this most unlikely of characters, and she's about to bring her to repentance and he's about to bless her, and he's about to answer Naomi's prayer in a way that Naomi could have never dreamed. This is what the Lord has done for you and for me this morning. Those of you who may not yet believe, those of you who may not have faith in Jesus, look at what God has graciously done for you. He's provided for you a Savior, a Redeemer, by His love. And I ask you this morning, repent and believe. It's the grace of God for you this morning. It leads us to point three. Point three. God's grace is costly. God's grace is costly. We've seen the turning point in Naomi's life. We've seen the hopelessness with which she's been faced and and the, the small sliver of light that comes from the town of Bethlehem. But 
We've also seen Naomi warning their daughters not to return and follow back to Bethlehem with her. And now her daughters are left with a choice. they're, They're left with this choice. Follow Naomi back to the promised land where there's really not much hope, seemingly, or return to their old way of life in Moab. That's the choice. Orpha returns. She, she goes back, she turns, and she, she goes back. And before, before she's very far off, we can see Naomi just walking down the road, probably still in sight. But her sister-in-law, Ruth, we see that she clings to Naomi. That, that word clings to uh, there, that she, she clung on uh, to Naomi and she pleaded with Naomi, don't tell me to go back. That word clung to is oftentimes translated in the Bible as that she held fast. That's a covenant word. It's a word that means that, that she is uh, determined and that she is going to be loyal. It's a, it's a statement of loyalty and devotion. But it's not just loyalty and devotion to Naomi that Ruth stays. A lot of times we can get this wrong. If we look, uh, we, we just kind of surface level, we can think, man, what an example of what it looks like to be faithful to your family. <laughs> but there's so much more here that's going on in the life and heart of Ruth. Look in verse 15. She said, Behold your sister-in-law, this is Naomi speaking, Behold your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her and go after your sister-in-law. Orpha, probably still visible in the distance, Naomi is, is charging Ruth. She's returning to her people. She's returning to her gods. Go back. Go back with her. But something has taken place in the heart of Ruth that she can't go back. She can't go back. I think God has visited Ruth with his grace and has shown her, as Sinclair Ferguson, a commentator, he's written an excellent little book on the book of Ruth, he has shown her that she has a choice. Jehovah plus nothing in Bethlehem, or everything minus Jehovah in Moab. You see, she could have gone back to Moab and, and had plenty of husbands. She could have gone back to Moab and, Moab and had plenty of food. Uh, she could have been looked out And that's exactly what Orpha saw. And she makes this decision by sight to go. But Ruth has decided. She has decided that she cannot return because she does not want to return to her people and to her gods. The Lord has worked in Naomi's and in Ruth's life to bring her to repentance and faith. Look at Ruth's response. These are really famous words. Uh, Verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. That's covenant language. We've seen that language before. We've seen that language uh, when the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. 
He has made a covenant and he has bound himself to this people. And that's exactly what Ruth has done here. She has bound herself, not just to Naomi, but to the people of God and to God himself. She has yielded herself to God's grace, knowingly, knowing that it could cost her everything, even her very life. You know, we can see Naomi there urges her to go back again. Why does Naomi want Ruth to return to her pagan gods? I don't think that's what it is. I think she's just doing what Jesus did in the New Testament. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we see people coming up to Jesus. I want to follow after you. And Jesus says, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow after me. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and even your own life. If you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of being my disciple. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow after me. Be willing to die if you want to be my disciple. Or perhaps the strangest one of all in the book of John. You want to be my disciple? Then you better eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's really strange saying to the disciples, wonder what in the world is he doing? What Jesus is doing, he's not, he's not discouraging people from following him. He's urging them to count the costs. That's exactly, I think, what Naomi does here with Ruth. And Ruth does that, and she yields herself to the grace of God and throws her life on the mercy of God himself. Brothers and sisters, we are called to do the same thing this morning. Following after Jesus is a costly thing. When you submit yourself to the Lord's grace through repentance and faith, there are no promises of financial security. There are no promises of health. There's no promises of popularity. There's no promises of prosperity of any kind this side of eternity. There is only promises that God's grace will be sufficient for you. It's the only promise. But that promise is enough. And that promise is more precious than anything that this world could offer you. And Ruth realizes that. We should realize that this morning. For Ruth, this meant the possibility of no food, no husband, no children, possibly even death. And for us this morning, following after Jesus requires no less. What does this story have to do with you and me? Flip over to to Ruth chapter 4. We'll see exactly what the Lord had planned for Ruth in these final verses. Just to kind of catch you up in the story, and again, I encourage you to go home this evening and read what exactly it is that the Lord does. But the Lord raises up this man named Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz uh, stands as this kind of shining light of redemption uh, in this story that points us forward to one that was going to come from him and Ruth. See, Boaz redeems Ruth uh, and redeems uh, the land of Elimelech and provides, uh, he, he marries Ruth and provides for her a son. They have a son, and, and so that's where we pick up here in chapter 4, verse 16. Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, and she became his nurse. And the neighboring women gave, that, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and from Nashon, Salmon, and from Salmon was born Boaz, 
and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, King David. So the line stops there, but if we pick up again and we look forward in Matthew chapter 1, we see this exact same genealogy. But Matthew takes it even further. And he shows us that from this line comes our Savior, Jesus. You see, God uses the salvation of this unlikely convert, this Moabite, pagan, idol-worshipping little girl to bring us King David and to bring us, ultimately, Jesus. Our God is a faithful God. He is a faithful God that will take our tragedy and take our hardship and, and use it for His glory and for our good. He is a faithful God that will take the most unlikely of people like Ruth and like you and like me and to use us in ways that we couldn't even imagine for His glory and for our good. Won't you trust Him this morning? He is faithful to do all that He promises and to use us to bring about His great purposes. For those of you who don't trust in Him, why would you die in your sin? Jesus comes. He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, He lives a perfect life that you and I can never live. He dies on the cross and takes the punishment for our sin that you and I deserve. And as He dies there, He's buried. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, God, in His unyielding faithfulness to His promises, raises His Son Jesus up and defeats sin and defeats death. And the Bible tells us that by His grace, if you and I would just repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, then you and I too can be saved. So the story of redemption in the book of Ruth is not just redemption of Boaz. It's not just redemption of, you, of Ruth. It's redemption of you and me. So I want to urge you this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then put your faith in Christ. Turn in repentance and faith and throw yourself on His mercy. Forsake everything that this world promises you. And this world will promise you an awful lot. But it's stuff that doesn't last. It's stuff that will not fill the void in your heart. Only Jesus can do that. So turn and put your faith in Him this morning. For those of you who do follow after Christ, who who call yourself by His name, who bear the name of Christ as a Christian, look at what God has done for you and for me. Look at the way the Lord will bend history to work things out for our good and for His glory gospel the world promises a whole lot promises a whole lot and so often we can be tempted to to be like orpha to look at the promises of the world and they they sometimes look so much more attractive than what it is that that the lord has for us i heard a story one time of a famous preacher who was getting up to preach at a conference one time and this is a true story uh, uh, the pastor's name is alistair Begg. Alistair was getting ready to, to preach at this conference, and before he stood to preach, he woke up early that morning and he went to uh, a coffee shop. He was the only person in the coffee shop uh, there that morning, and, and this little Chinese girl came in and into the coffee shop, and he, she saw, uh, she was a student at Harvard, she saw that, uh, that Pastor Alistair Begg was reading his Bible and reading through his sermon notes. And she walked up to him and she said, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. And he said, yes, I am. And she said, I am too. And this sparked an interest for, uh, for Pastor Begg. And he said, well, how did you become a Christian uh, living in the land of China? And he tells this, and he said, I'll never forget her response. She said, I entered through the narrow gate. 
I entered through the narrow gate. All this world has to promise is, is a big, wide gate. But the promise of the gospel is this small, narrow gate that God's grace will be sufficient for you in whatever circumstance that you face. And that's the gate that we should enter through. It's a narrow gate. And the scripture promises us that if we enter in through that narrow gate, then his grace will be sufficient for us and he will be faithful to provide everything that we need to work all things out for our good and for his glory. So let's trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you have here for us in the book of Ruth. The fact that you provide for us a redeemer. And it's not a redeemer named Boaz who died and who's still in his grave. It's a redeemer that comes from Bethlehem that is named Jesus, who died in our place, who fulfilled every aspect of the law that we cannot fulfill, and took our punishment and rose again from the dead. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would be faithful to follow after him. Lord, give us the grace to believe. Pray this morning in your name. Amen. Come now to a time.